All right, we're going to uh, move out of Sardis. Or, uh, yeah, they're dead, so we'll leave them alone. Um, so I guess the um, concluding remarks with Sardis is, is the, we want to close it with the idea that um, even though dead, there is the, um, it is the resurrected Christ who speaks to them with a symbol uh, of life in his hands, the seven stars and the seven spirits of God. So uh, even uh, in their state, the Lord comes to them and says, hey, strengthen what remains. I'm not sure if that's a reference to the people that are uh, there. Um, there's no indication of what that actually uh, is pointed to. So um, we will leave that where it is. Uh, we've done, let's see, we've done Ephesians, which is the uh, uh, doctrinal correct church. That has no love. We've done Smyrna, which is a persecuted church that is maintaining the course and holding on. We've done uh, Pergamum, which is the church in compromise. We've done uh, Thyatira, the church in sin. And now we've done Sardis, the church that has is dead. Um, and again, what we wanted to do is, is lay out the, uh, the picture that God always holds for himself, a remnant. Um, the churches, again, I want to go back to two points that I want to, I think it's important for us to keep in our mind. One is, is that we're doing this from an amillennial perspective. And what does that mean exactly? How does that Im impact the way that we understand Revelation? Especially in, ter in terms of the way it's being understood now. I mean, I listened to some guys the other day on on. TV that were teaching Revelation and it was terrible because they're trying to they're continually trying to equate what's going on in the world today with specific Bible passages oh this must be that and this must be the sign of the sun and the moon and this must be this and we all know that symbolism is not intended to be uh, interpreted in that fashion so what does it mean to be reading prophecy and revelation from an amillennial perspective? What does that mean? I, I want you to be able to say that succinctly. What does it mean? Huh? Uh, oh, you want to know. Okay. What it means is, is that because we do not hold to a future thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and because we understand that Christ reigns now, and that the millennium is the inter-advental period. Everything that is written in Revelation applies to the church from the time of Jesus' incarnation to his second coming. Everything. Now, there is, we don't want to make the mistake and say, well, there's no future aspect to this because there is a future aspect. There is going to be what's called an antichrist crisis or an antichrist event um but that is is um a, a recapitulation we've seen it throughout history we've seen antichrist throughout history name a few okay nimrod he's the first as far as we know hitler nero um, scripturally, we can point to several. We can point, huh? Tower of Babel, that's Nimrod. Um, Nebuchadnezzar. Um, how about Exodus, uh, uh, Ezekiel 27, 28? Who's that against? King of Tyre. So we see that there is a cyclical event that goes on through Scripture. And what the futurist or the, the uh, premillennialist viewpoint is, is that we're waiting for another revelation of one of these men in order for everything in Revelation to actually happen. And I, John puts an end to that in his, in his little epistles where he says the spirit of Antichrist is already now. It's already in the world. Now it does take human form and it is... It is 
focused throughout history, and we've seen that. And so the notion that we're waiting for some future event to happen where all of this stuff is going to take place, I think really emasculates the Bible, especially the book of Revelation. It really causes Christians, and I read one author says, it just causes them to go to sleep. We're waiting for something, and so we're just sitting in a state like this. Well, did you see the stars the other day? I wonder how we add that to the book of Revelation. Is there, is there, yeah, was there any? And we don't do anything. And so the idea, and I think it's intended, and I think it's the right way to understand Revelation. Now, I don't think, I know it is, is that Revelation is applicable to us here and now. So when we talk about the different churches, when we talk about the things that are said to the different churches, there are some things that are re- referenced. So when we read the, uh, the, the seven churches, the tendency is, and, and even it's even said in many commentaries, that this is an addendum to or an addition to Revelation. That John either wrote this before or after the actual visions. And that because they really had no place to go, they just stuck them there. Okay? They actually fit better there. But there's allusions throughout the seven churches to chapter 1. And there are consistent imagery pictures throughout what is said to, to each church that are greater, uh, what's the word, um, fleshed out more after chapter 4. And so it's important that we hear what we're saying with regards to what's going on with the churches and understand that. And I have, a pro, I have a hard time with this. And the reason I'm saying all this is because in, Phil, in, the, in the letter to Philadelphia, there is a specific statement that's made that a lot of people apply completely to the future. And I, I caught myself while studying for this doing the exact same thing. And the reason is, is because I have to contend with 40 years of training in a premillennialist dispensational theology and i find myself saying well that's going to happen then and then i have to realize no the purpose of this book is not to tell you what you're waiting for the purpose of the book is to tell you how to persevere now how to persevere now these are the things that are going to be arrayed against you how do you persevere now these are the encouragements these are the hopes these are the things that you're going to encounter these are all of these things in the book and now because just to show you in panoramic view what I've been telling you with the churches, with regards to the churches, now I'm going to show you all these visions that demonstrate exactly what I've been talking about with the seven churches. Does that make sense? So an amillennial perspective brings revelation into the here and now and makes it applicable in every way, shape, and form to what the church has gone through from the time of Jesus' birth to the time of his second coming. All right? There's going to be phases where the, temp- where the persecution is not as strong, but we see that in the seven churches. There's going to be phases where the persecution is going to be really intense. We see that in the seven churches. There's going to be times when the church is absolutely so compromised that you can't tell it, you can't tell it from the world. We see that in the seven churches. There's going to be times when the church is on fire. It's making a difference. It's, it's, it's changing the culture around it. See that in the seven churches? So everything that we can see that has gone on and that, will, that is going on and that will go on is contained here. It is a gospel. There's a book out called uh, Revelation, the Capstone of the Canon. It's a great book because it says exactly that thing. It says Revelation is the summation, the concluding statement of the, of the entire Bible. And it takes everything from the Bible and it shows it in panoramic view. So we have to keep those kind of things in mind. We have, to, we have to remember that. And the reason that I wanted to is I think sometimes when we start looking in an exegetical way at Scripture, verse by verse, we have a real tendency to lose the picture because of the brushstrokes. And I want to keep that before us this morning. And a couple of things else that I wanted to say. The letters to the churches were never intended to be sent individually to the churches to which they were addressed. Never. So when we're going through the churches, the guy didn't show up with a four-verse note and read it to Ephesus. 
He showed up with 22 chapters. And he read it from start to finish. So the letter of Ephesus to the Ephesian church was to be understood within the context of 22 chapters. Never individually. All right? Each church is all that is real in their city. Okay? We're seeing a very, very close correlation to the church as it reflects to the culture of the city that it's in. Especially with Sardis. It was a dead church. They had a necropolis of over a thousand graves. They worshipped a deity that, that, that was supposed to be able to bring back death from li- uh, life from death. Um, they were sitting on their laurels thinking about past glories. And in reality, they were completely ineffective. Nobody even knew they were there. They were a dead church. So they reflected their culture. So each one of these churches do, in fact, somehow reflect their culture. It does not live apart from the locality and the population amid which, uh, which it has a mere temporal residency. Okay? The letters here, now let's move to Philadelphia. The letter here to the Philadelphians is one of only two churches that do not receive a rebuke from the Lord. There's only two. What's the other one? Come on. Smyrna. There we go. Said the young man on his way out. <laughs> There's only two churches that did not receive a rebuke. And we spoke about this last week because it, it, it speaks of that at any given time, this is, this is almost sad to say, but it, it, it's the picture that Revelation has given us, that any given time in the ecclesiastic world, there's going to be five-sevenths of the church that are in a bad state. And... I look around, and I'll just be flat honest with you, I look around at the condition of the church, especially in Sacramento, and I'm grieved. It's hard. That's the picture of Revelation. Okay, so uh, there's only two out of the seven churches that do not receive a rebuke. And at the end of this lesson, I'll show you that Philadelphia is the only church, even now, that still has a presence. Every other church has been destroyed. And it is the only church that God says, I will keep you. And he did. There is a church in modern-day Philadelphia, in Turkey, that can trace its roots all the way back to the bishop that was, that was presiding over the church at the time this letter was written. That's right. This is one of the churches, though. Let me, get, let me say this. Um, the other being Smyrna. And there are a great many other similarities between these two that are noteworthy, okay? Both churches are small and of little strength, okay? I want very much for us to hear these things because these, there are points of, that we can be encouraged by. The only two churches that did not receive a rebuke from the Lord, the only two churches that were apparently bearing witness as they were supposed to were said to be Small, of little strength, and poor. Both were despised and existed in the midst of a society that hated and persecuted them. Both of them did. And the source of the trouble for both originated from the same antagonist. Both of these churches were said to have as their antagonist the same person. Do you know who that was? Those who said that they were Jews, but were really of the synagogue of Satan. Both places. Okay? Right. Those who claimed to be Christians and are not. Those who claimed to be of the covenant community and are not. And so, when we see that, what do we see in Revelation during the visions that demonstrates that particular statement? Or that it gives symbolic imagery to that particular statement? Who is that embodied in? The false prophet. The one who, interestingly enough, looks like a lamb but has goat's horns. 
And that's a, specifically seen in that capacity for a reason. It looks like Christ, but is not. All right, so. There are, di- there are very close distinctions between Philadelphia and uh, Smyrna. Now, I want to give some in- uh, information on the city of Philadelphia and its history because there are some significant things. Remember what we said, that the city, the church often depicted many things that were going on in the city. Especially what we did was when we went through uh, Sardis, we saw that it was a dead church in a city that s- somehow celebrated death and resurrection, Right? So Philadelphia is a church that had a definite connection back to some very specific things about the city and about the geography. Philadelphia was founded by, uh, by the Pergamanian king, uh, Eumenes, after the entire district came into his possession via the treaty in 187 B.C. And therefore, Philadelphia is the newest of all seven cities. Okay. It received its name from Attalus II, whose loyalty to uh, M- Eumenes, I always mess that up, his brother won him the epithet Philadelphian, or Philadelphius, which means brotherly love. So one of the guys who helped found the city loved his brother to such a degree that he supported him in everything, and so they called the city brotherly love. All right? Because the district was in the very heart of the Pergamanian realm. Now, this is important. It is, oh, I'm sorry, not this one, the next one. Uh, it is doubtful that the city was founded as a military colony so as to guard the frontier like Thyatira, although it did have some strategic importance. So it wasn't a military city. Instead, the city was founded to consolidate, regulate, and educate the central region in which it was situated. Okay? So it was situated in the Pergamanian countryside, Lydia. And it had an inroad into a, a vast frontier. And the section that it sat in was considered somewhat uh, barbaric. So Philadelphia was founded for a specific reason. The intention was to make it the center of Greco-Asiatic civilization and a means of spreading the Greek language and culture to the eastern parts of Lydia and Phrygia. All right. It was then from the very beginning a missionary city founded to pr- promote a certain unity of spirit, culture and loyalty within the realm. Ramsey says the apostle it was the apostle of Hellenism in an oriental land. Okay? So it was it was established to proclaim and be basically the apostle of a culture to change an entire region. To Hellenize a region. In fact, they were so good at it that by AD 19, the Lydian tongue was completely obsolete in the area. Nobody spoke it anymore. This is a um, historically Lydian area. And within a hundred years, Philadelphia had done its job so well that Greek was the only language spoke. Like Thyatira, very little is known about the prevailing religion life, the religious life of Philadelphia. The only commentator that says anything about it is Smalley. And Smalley points to the idea that they, their chief deity was Dionysus. Now, I don't know where he came up with that, and nobody else did. But um, he said that because of the, the great plenitude of vines, grapevines that were, that were throughout the area, and because of a shrine that they found, he believes that their, their pr- chief deity was the god Dionysus. Uh, the city was tr- uh, situated as the hub of a communication route. It was situated in such a way, it was the gateway of Phrygia from Lydia. Now, you had to go up this like really, really steep road to get there. So it was actually considered the doorway, which is another key, to Phrygia from Lydia. All right. Um, it was located along a path by which trade and communication from the harbor of Smyrna, Lydia, and the northwest regions were maintained with Phrygia in the east. At the time, this path rivaled the great trade route from Ephesus. 
and in later Byzantine and medieval times, was the greatest trade route of the entire country. It was also an imperial post road, on the imperial post road, uh, it, that came from Rome to Troas, Pergamum, and Sardis. And that road, excuse me, passed through Philadelphia. Uh, thus, Philadelphia was a stage on the main line of imperial communications. So, all trade that was going to Phrygia from Lydia, well, here's Phrygia, Lydia here. You have like this mountain area here, and you have Phrygia here. And you have like Philadelphia situated right here. So, uh, Ephesus is here in the, in the um, harbor, is here. So all the trade that would, would go into Phrygia went through up a steep path here and into Phrygia, but it had to go through Philadelphia. Also in Rome down here, the main post road went up that was going up into these areas had to go through Philadelphia. So it was a hub. It was a communication hub, All right, which is important when you consider what Jesus says about the church later on. So th some things that we want to take away. One, it was set up as a, as, as a missionary city. It was the gateway from Lydia to Phrygia, the doorway. And it was a, a hub of communication from Rome and from this section, and it disseminated information through, through it. it was, information was disseminated through it. Okay? Now, here's another big key. In AD 17, so, um, I'm trying to remember, I'll have to, um, let, let me think about that for a second. In AD 17, an unusually severe earthquake destroyed 12 cities in the area. Um, Sardis suffered the most, so our wonderful alive city Sardis, which is right here. The earthquake was epicentered somewhere in this area, and it, it was apparently a horrific earthquake. Twelve cities were leveled. Um, and while Sardis suffered the greatest physical immediate damage, Philadelphia suffered the longest, or the, the worst in lasting damage because they suffered aftershocks for years afterwards, for absolute years. All right. AD 17 was the time the earthquake hit. By AD 20, they were still recording aftershocks. That's three years later. Okay, so this had such a dramatic effect that Strabo wrote. Um, two or three years after, uh, that Sardis suffered most in an immediate context, being closer to the epicenter, um, but that's, I just said that, and consequently, even by AD 20, many of the inhabitants, okay, so here's the deal, when, because of the way that the aftershocks were happening, many of the inhabitants of Philadelphia didn't even live in the city, they'd moved out, and they lived all around the city, all right, and they lived out in open plains, and many times in small huts. And they considered people who still remained in Philadelphia to be crazy. So you have all these people that are afraid to go into the city because it's in unstable. Another key point. Okay? Uh, those who remained in the city spent a great deal of time and resource strengthening the walls and the houses against the possibility of future catastrophe. And like I said, people who still lived there were considered by the people that lived outside of it to be a little bit on the wonky side. Okay, so we have several things that we want to talk about or that we want to suggest here. Philadelphia is one of only two churches that receives no rebuke from the Lord. It is the strongest of the seven lampstands in its witness. It is was created and situated as a missionary city to spread uh, Hellenism throughout the area, and it did so extremely well. It was the central hub of communication between Lydia and Phrygia. And it suffered a massive earthquake. It was rebuilt, and there's some stuff that, that goes on with the idea of the name, but I, I found m most of that to be somewhat of a stretch 
Uh, it was called New Caesarea, or Neo Caesarea, after its destruction because of the guy, the, uh, one of the um, Roman guys, emperors, helped him rebuild it, gave him a ton of money, and exempted them from paying tax for, I think it was five years. So that they could rebuild. And they renamed the city in honor of him. And that's kind of an interesting thing when you start to talk about the promise of Jesus with regards to the names. But it's, it's kind of a stretch, I think, in, in many instances. So anyway, those things are the important deals about Philadelphia for historic purposes. And they will impact the way that we understand what Jesus is saying to the churches. What I want to do is bring what those churches heard in the promise that Jesus gave them that were specific to them. To them, that then in turn can be specific and applicable to us. Okay? All right. Uh, who's got their Bible open? Who wants to, who would, would not mind reading the letter to the church of Philadelphia? Shoot. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no man, no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie and behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never, ha never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Right. All right. So a very encouraging, a very positive, a very refreshing interlude into, especially after dialoguing with regards to Sardis. And it's stuck strategi strategically in between two of the worst churches. <laughs> you got Sardis, the dead church in Philadelphia, uh, and uh, Laodicea, who could care less. So we got this bright spot, Philadelphia. Now the primary thing that we, we want to keep in mind, and when we read what Jesus is saying to the, the, the church in Philadelphia, we understand that one of the greatest struggles that they were having, one of the greatest antagonists against them was the, was the Jews. Now, the interesting thing is, is that there's no historic or archaeological evidence that the Jews had a very strong presence in Philadelphia at all, which is very interesting. But the tone of the letter is such that we can take by what's being said here that the primary issue, the primary uh, antagonist that arrayed itself against the believers in Philadelphia was from the Jewish people. And they did several things, and we have to remember what they did. They would go into a place, they would align themselves politically. That Number one, they were wealthy usually. And that's not stereotyping, that's just saying that they were. They would align themselves politically. They were very compromised. Judaism was very, very compromised. And the reason that it was is because in many instances they were much like the Catholic Church that believed that, they would, that their job was to, uh, to create a theonomy, which is a God rule. A God, a, a legal structure and a society based on God's rule. That's what theonomy means. So their idea was to go in and join forces with whatever political structure was going on. And they would compromise dramatically with them in order to do so. And one of the things in order to keep favor, how many of you guys have ever seen the movie Risen? That's a good movie. If you ever get a chance, watch that movie. It's, it's, a, it's a Christian movie that's done with a lot of really good stars in it. And it's, a, it's a, uh, a story of the Roman centurion that is, that is commissioned by Pilate to apprehend the resurrected Jesus. 
and it's it's uh, it's really quite quite good. But they have they portray <laughs> the Jewish guys in there so well, so well, uh, because they continually come into Pilate and they make deals. And one of the ways that they make deals is they sell the Christians out. They betray the Christians. And there was actually a thing that would go on in the Jewish synagogue that was spoken of that denied Jesus as the Messiah and they incorporated it into their worship to find out who among them was a Christian. Because a Christian would not blaspheme the name of Christ. They didn't hold that Jesus was the Messiah, obviously. So they would do these things in their church that would force Christians to reveal their hands and then they would turn them over politically. Once that was done, there were all kinds of things that happened to the Christian. They would lose their status. We've seen this. They would lose their status socially. They would lose their financial income. They would lose their their economic status. Sometimes they would lose their possessions. They would just come in and take them. They would drive them from the city or they would kill them or throw them in jail. Okay? So it was not a this was all usually in many instances centered around the Jewish the, the Jews who brought this to bear because the Romans had this idea that if, as long as you didn't make a big deal, you could keep, continue your religious practice. They were really well known for that because they were a a polytheistic group. And so a lot of times all you had to do was throw a coin at, into uh, a thing set outside a Roman, uh, uh, an emperor's temple, and that was good because it, it had just become kind of a, a practice, not really a religion. But the Jews, on the other hand, were turning them over and saying, if you want peace to continue in this city, you must kill the, Jew, the, the Christians because they are divisive. So, all right, so, and, and, and the reason I said all that is because the tenor of the letter and almost everything that Jesus says to the Philadelphian church has to do with a statement that the Jews would understand. So, Jesus is specifically at this church drawing a strong distinction between old covenant and new creation. This is all through this particular letter. And the first thing he says is, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David. Nobody in Phrygia would understand that. Right? Key of David. David who? Um, Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one will open. So let's take the phrase, the Holy One. What What does that mean in context of all of this? The Holy One. Why did he choose that word or that, that epithet? Anybody know? I am the Holy One. Think, put on your Old Testament thinking. Think along the lines of the Old Testament. How was God always identified? How did the Jews identify Yahweh? The Holy One. The Jews... Rejected Christ as the Messiah. Basically crucified him for blasphemy, making himself out to be like God. And what is the first thing Jesus says to this Philadelphian churches when he shows up? Hey, God here, Messiah, Davidic Messiah, the one that the Jews have rejected. Okay, so... It is a title attributed elsewhere in Revelation to God, 4, 6, and 6, 10, but is a common designation of the Lord's Messiah, especially in the Gospels, okay? Thus, Jesus is here describing himself, uh, himself as the divine Messiah. The idea then in the Greek is that Jesus is here claiming to be the Holy One in whom all the eternal divine attributes reside, and who is himself the root and ground of them all. Basically, when he was confronted in the garden and they said, are you, are you the one? And he said, I am. 
he used the same language that God said to, to uh, Moses, whom shall I say sent me? And he said, I am that I am. That's the same thing that Jesus said. So in so doing, he made himself equal with God. And this is what he's doing here. He is making himself equal with God. He is reaffirming the fact that he is the long-awaited Messiah. When it is understood that the primary opposition to the Philadelphian church seems to have been the Jewish community, Jesus declaring himself to be the divine Messiah of God is to be taken as a direct rebuke to to the rejection of those who were persecuting the church. This is very, very important that we understand that because there's a, there is a definite statement made. There is a flip-flop that actually happens in what Jesus promises. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty significant and it's pretty staggering. So he also calls himself the true one. What does that mean? Anybody? True one. I am the holy and true one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the, in the Hebrew, uh, in, in John one, when he, and Jesus is, is spoken of as uh, as the true God, as the true one, uh, true is the same as the Hebrew word for faithful, has said, which is the covenant of God, covenant faithfulness, truth. Obviously, we think of truth in another way, but in their mind, it meant covenant faithfulness. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that is right. That's one way that this, this means. The other word, the other thing is, is that it also means genuine. Okay. It doesn't mean that I'm not telling you a lie. True in the original language meant genuine. Okay. So both of these have import in what's being said Um, trench says of this that the idea is not between the true and the false so we'll do genuine first the true or genuine has two different meanings the greek word for uh here designates that which is real that which corresponds to reality so trench says of this that the idea is not between the true and the false but between the perfect and the imperfect between what is fully realized and an idea that is partially realized. So Jesus is the fullness of. I am the true one. I am the fullness. Christ here then declares that whatever names, titles, and offices he holds, these in him are realized to their full, reach their culminating glory, that the idea and the fact in him are what they never are, nor could be in any other, absolutely commiserate. Commensurate. Uh, in the Hebrew, as Rick said, it, it designates what is faithful and trustworthy. In the Old Testament, then, God is He who keeps faith forever. I will never break my covenant. He swears by none other than what is none other than Himself, because there is nothing greater. Right? Yep. The one who is forever faithful to his covenant promise. So both of these ideas are incorporated in him saying, I am the true one. Uh, it is the second in the Hebrew context that, is, that many believe is being used here and recalls the covenant made with Israel because we're going back to the idea of Israel. So when Jesus says, I am the true one, this goes back in the idea of those who understand Jewish History of the covenant-keeping God. I am faithful to my covenant. This is important because what we're going to see happen is that there has been a transference or a flip-flop, if you will. Those who were of the covenant originally were no longer. They had violated the covenant. Ethnic Jews were still Jews ethnically. But covenantally, they were no longer. Now the true Jew was the Christians from Philadelphia. And this had to be one of the most 
amazing smacks that could have been leveled against a Jewish individual. Rick. What you just said is so controversial. Huh, I know it. So controversial. I 100% agree with you, but I think you should say it again. Because I think this is a huge, it has implications today mm. in a huge way as mm. well. The statement that was made is, is that when Jesus says for himself that he is the faithful one to the covenant, he is basically saying here that, all, that, that I will be faithful to my covenant, right? And this is a major statement with regards to what is being said here because the Jews held that they were the covenant people of God. But covenant always has do this and this. The Jews violated the covenant. They were no longer the covenant people of God. Ethnically, they were Jews. Covenantally, they were not. They had lost their covenant heritage. That's right. That's right. Because there is, throughout the Old Testament, you do this, I will do this. God initiates. I will do this, but you must do this accordingly. And in order to maintain that covenant, that reciprocal give and take had to be maintained. The Jews did not do that. And that's the rub. Those who hold to this idea that the Jews are redeemed simply because they're ethnic Jews have no concept of what it is to stand covenantally righteous. They just don't. The basic of Christianity is based on covenant. It's seen throughout Scripture. And when the covenant is violated, the promises of the covenant are forfeit. That's why no man could by his own efforts, that's why Jesus had, God had to continually swear by himself because men could not uphold this, right? So there's a new covenant. Now, very simply, all ethnic Jews had to do was step into faith in the Messiah who was the covenant promise. I just read something this week and I thought it was really cool. I want to tell you about it. You know, you know why Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on a donkey? This is completely off the subject, but I thought it was really cool. That's right. Uber wasn't available. Because the donkey is an animal that is used to seal covenant. So for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem on the foal of the donkey, so Jesus riding into, by riding into Jerusalem on the foal of the donkey, he the declaration was made that the Lion of Judah was the Lamb of God. That was the way it was stated. That's an amazing thing. The donkey was used as, like many times there were blood animals that were sacrificed in order to ratify a covenant. The donkey was often used as a seal uh, the foal of a donkey was used oftentimes as a seal, a blood seal, by which a covenant was ratified. So Jesus rode in on the foal of a donkey. When that, that's cool. I thought that was cool. So anyway, take that. Do with it what you want. The true one. Faithful to the covenant. And his faithfulness to that covenant is going to be out, by, uh, is borne out by the inclusion of a greater covenant people. And we see that throughout Isaiah. Okay? All right. Key of David. What do you think this means? Key of David. Key of David. Steward of the kingdom. Key of David. Very significant statement. Christ describes himself because of the way that this letter is structured as uh, using strong Hebrew imagery here and declares himself to be the true Messiah, the one who has the key of David. Right? Okay. Uh, the Old Testament passage that's being referenced, does anybody know? I didn't. I had to look it up. 
Oh, there you go. Did you read a textbook? Is it cross-reference in there? <laughs> Darn it. All right. It's Isaiah. Isaiah 22, 22. All right. And the story there is that Eliakim is chosen to carry the key. It's actually said, I will put the key of the house of David on your shoulder, which is very key because later on uh, it is said that the Messiah will have what on his shoulder? The government. Yeah, so authority. So the key of the house of David was placed on Eliakim's shoulders. Now, this is significant. Why was it done? Does anybody know? Why was the key given to Eliakim? There's another guy involved here. His name is Shebna. Why was Eliakim given the key? Because Shebna had failed in his duty. So throughout the letter of Philadelphians, what you're going to see is you're going to see a vacated or a forfeited spot that has been given to another. And this is one of those that, that we see right here. I have the key of David. Now, this is a direct reference to Isaiah 22. And that story is that Eliakim is given the key because God, not David, God rejected Shebna because he was pr proud and arrogant and was abusing his authority. I found you wanting. I'm going to take this key away from you. And listen to the words that he, he says of Shebna. This rejection by the Lord was complete. Listen to this. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently. Oh, you strong man, he will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land, and there you will die. Wow. The main point of the prophecy was that Shebna... Oh, I just lost my whole place here. Yeah, there it is. The main part of the prophecy was that Shebna would be brought down and another, Eliakim, would be put in his place over the household. Eliakim was a servant of the Lord, faithful and trustworthy, and he would rise from a lower position to become a great officer in the court. Now, what is that a picture of? Eliakim is a foreshadowing of Messiah. He will raise from a low position and assume lordship over all. Okay? This has import to the message to the Jew, uh, of Jesus to the Philadelphian churches in two places. Here, because Jesus had taken the, the key away from Israel. Another one of those. Another one of those harsh statements. It's, no, let me say this. It's not vindictive. God's not capricious. Israel had rejected God's Messiah. Not only had rejected, but willingly done so. Because Jesus says to them, when they claimed that who he was was actually of, of Lucifer, remember when they said that? What did he say to them? Every sin committed by man will be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not. They willfully attributed what was God, what they knew to be of God, to Lucifer, to Satan. So it was, it was an act of volition. So God, Jesus, the Messiah, didn't take him away from him, but because of who he was, was now the steward of the household of God. The, Israel, the Jews were no longer. And they were probably saying this to the Philadelphian believers. Listen, you guys will never enter the kingdom because we're the holder of the keys. And Jesus is saying, nuh-uh. I am. And Philadelphian believers, because you are faithful in my sight, I will set before you a door that is open continually. 
No man will shut it. Not the Jews who are, who are threatening you with that. Because I have opened it. Because I am now the overseer of the house of David. So is some of that, you think, the key of revelation and sight and understanding? Well, now, something that, that's an interesting sta- statement. Um, many, many, believer, many commentators say we should never mix this with the idea of wisdom and understanding, which is what is said about the, uh, the Pharisees. You People come, but you keep them from understanding. And you hinder them from entering. Because you refuse to let them understand. There, that's not what's being said here. The idea goes back to Isaiah, with it, which is entrance into the presence of the king. Eliakim held that, held that authority. He made the decision on who got audience with the king and who did not. And Jesus is now saying, that authority is mine. It's now mine. The Jews had accepted that they were the keeper of the kingdom. They were the ones that had been given the keys. But Jesus said, no, it's mine. And then who did he give it and share it with? Peter. So now the co-keeper of the keys is now who? The church. Another shift from what was to what is now. Another covenantal shift. So I got to stop, but we want to stop there. Um, I'll leave you with this. Jesus is the faithful covenant keeper. And we now live in the fullness of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. The door has now been opened for the greater Israel. And we have been invited in to that covenant because there is one who has sworn by himself and is himself the ratification of that covenant. And our faith in the ratification of that covenant, the person who ratifies that covenant, by that we gain entrance into the very presence of God because he holds the key. And through him we enter in. So this morning, enter in. All right? So, Father, we're grateful. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you would bring these things home to us, that we would understand the joy that is ours in, in you, but also the truth, the sobriety, and the awesomeness of who you are and what you've done. And may we honor that and reverence it with great holiness and true joy. In Jesus' name, amen.